I thought it was providential, our reading from 1 Peter today, and that the verses from Peter's letter could very well be applied to us. I'd like to read those verses once again. First Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Grant us, O God, your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light, in your truth find freedom, and in your will discover your peace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. If Peter or Paul had had Aunt Mildred for their English teacher, like I had in the Orinoco Academy, they would have had their fingers wrapped for run-on sentences. Exactly, verses 3 to 9 are one sentence in Greek. And now you're thinking, oh, he started to study Greek. No, but I know how to use the blue-letter Bible that has the Greek and the English in any translation that you want, side by side, explaining the verbs and the phrases. In the ESV, these verses are broken up into three separate sentences. But it's useful for us to realize that the dense and beautiful beginning of Peter's argument is one completed thought. We see that in verse 7, strange as it may seem, peace, glory, and honor. Probably refer here not to the praise of God or of Jesus Christ, but to the praise of Christians. The honor and glory that the Lord, the righteous judge, shall bestow on those who have been faithful to him. True enough, our praise, glory, and honor is only a participation in that which belongs first to the Lord. But praise, glory, and honor await Christians on the great day. Peter says as much again in chapter 5, verse 1, and 5, verse 4. The scene is the judgment day when Jesus Christ is revealed. The scene is very likely similar to that in Matthew 25, verses 31 and 33, when the Lord assembles all the nations before him and separates the righteous from the unrighteous and sets the righteous on his right hand. 
The Bible lists a number of reasons why Christians must suffer in this life. It is by the testing of our faith that its genuineness is revealed. It's easy to imagine oneself to believe in Jesus. Vast multitudes have supposed themselves to have done that and to do so. But real faith, genuine faith in Christ, stands the test of the shocks of life. And it is very important that to be tested, because there's so much sham faith or imitation faith, but out out there. We must know whether ours is the genuine article, because only true and living faith in Jesus will suffice to bring us to glory. Here too, as often elsewhere, the Bible in the Bible, the assurance of faith, our confidence that we are really in Christ, that He is really our Savior, that we really do have the forgiveness of our sins, and really are heirs of heaven, is the power in the Christian life. The more confident you are of your own salvation, the greater your love for Him, the greater your joy in salvation, the more fruitful you are in service to Him. Biblical writers care that you know that you are sure that you are saved. Doubtful faith weakens the heart and life. This is not the only purpose of suffering, of course. So the soul is strengthened. Paul, for example, speaks of suffering as increasing endurance and spiritual strength. As an athlete grows stronger or faster by subjecting his body to increasing demands, so the soul is strengthened by the endurance of his trials. We see that as well in Romans 5.3. Think about it. There's something of great importance here. As everyone who read this letter, when it was first written, would have fully understood, Peter had seen the Lord. He too looked forward to the Lord's return in a different way than most believers do, because he had seen him depart the world with his own eyes. When he thought of Jesus Christ, I would imagine, he saw his face. He had read the commission about no mental images. But that would come to mind. He tells us, he even uses that example when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there. We saw him. When he thought of Jesus, the sound of his voice, the recollection of countless scenes that Peter himself had witnessed, he had seen the Lord's miracles, been present for most of all of his sermons. He had been bedside when the Lord healed his mother-in-law of her fever. He had witnessed the transfiguration of the Lord on the mountaintop in Galilee. He had a private conversation with the Lord that first resurrection Sunday. He had watched Jesus ascend to heaven from the Mount of Olives, and had seen and heard the two angels assure, assure the twelve that this Jesus would return as he left. No wonder Peter loved the Lord. 
No wonder his faith was as strong as it it was. But Peter, of all people, Peter, who had that immense privilege reserved for so few believers, is saying that having seen the Lord is not really the most important thing. Christians who never saw the Lord in the flesh were not second-class Christians. They're not, for that reason, prevented from living a happy and fruitful life. What really matters and what brings a person to Christ and to heaven is not sight, but faith. What matters is not whether you were there when Jesus was in the world, but whether or not you love him. And you can love Jesus because you can know the experience and experience his love for you. That is the importance of the Holy Spirit. He brings Jesus and human beings together in a genuine personal encounter. Indeed, while only comparatively few people ever saw the Lord between his birth and his ascension to heaven, vast multitudes will rejoice to see him when he comes again. That is the light. That is the sight that matters. And it is reserved for those who really love the Lord. In the consideration of this paragraph, notice verses 3 through 6, two sides of our salvation. The glorious transformation of life already begun in this world is stretching way into the eternal future on the one hand. And on the other, griefs and trials of this world through which believers must still pass. Consider that two-sidedness as objective feature, as an objective feature of our faith and our experience as Christians. Every believer experiences salvation in both of these ways. But there is also in these verses, and especially in verses 6 through 9, an emphasis on the more subjective element. That is, in verses 3 through 6, we read of the great salvation itself and the accompanying trials. This is the way it is. It's a matter of fact. Whether or not we understand why, this will be our experience. But there's also here a focus on the experience of this two-sided reality, how believers experience this great renewal in the midst of trial. The accent falls on love and joy. There is a sense, of course, in which love and joy are very similar things insofar as our most deepest joys are directed to our most deepest loves. The loveless person does not rejoice, and the joyful person certainly loves. Since Peter is here most emphatic about joy, we'll consider joy this morning, but always remembering that in the Bible, as in human life, joy is a reflex of love. It is the emotion that love produces. We have joy in the Christian experience already beginning in verse 6. This is, in this you greatly rejoice. He's talking about our salvation. And then we have it again as in a climax in verse 8. The argument is not hard to follow. 
Not only do afflictions and trials come and with them grief for believers, but they have a specific purpose. The testing of our faith. The genuine element in faith is disclosed by a process akin to metal refining in which heat is used to separate pure, the pure and valuable material from dross and slag. slag. I've seen this in my life. Once at least, I had a friend who was a goldsmith and he took rough gold and melted it and poured it out into a mold and then extruded it into gold wire once it had started to cool to make an ID bracement, which I had asked them to make. Unfortunately, I only have this length of chain left. You'd think it fell out of a pocket in the snow, a car ran over it and ripped it apart. Nevertheless, it was still a rough ore made into a refined metal. The Bible office often compares the way God disciplines men to the refining process of metal. And since faith is even more precious than gold, for gold will perish with this world, while faith will endure forever. The results of these trials is therefore the assurance of salvation. That is why, that is where joy comes from. The trials make sure, more sure and more obvious that you are saved. Or as he puts it in verse 9, that you are receiving the salvation of your souls. There is something about the way a Christian endures under trial that adds to the believer's assurance. That is, what happens to a Christian under trial, the way of his, his or her life, faith asserts itself in the way in which the Lord draws near to him or her, the endurance he or she exhibits when the outward props are removed. All of this goes to prove that great transformation really has taken place. And if your gold is found in the midst of the unrefined ore, you could never know that so surely if life were always calm and serene and happy. How could you know that this was not simply an effect of your outward circumstances? You have to have pressure applied to know that so surely if life were always calm and serene and happy, That pressure helps us to know, helps you to know, me to know that that faith is real. Lots of folks think themselves Christians, imagine themselves Christians, who are not. The Bible says that all the time and warns us of a superficial commitment. Do men and women have genuine faith with Christ? That's the question. And the trials come to demonstrate whether they do or not. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 19. The trials of the Corinthian church have come, at least in part, to show which of you have God's approval. 
And Peter, writing to true Christians, as he presumes to be doing, speaks of these trials as confirming or proving the genuineness of their faith. And that's wonderful. Because it means that they have a part in the glorious future of the people of God. That praise, honor, glory await them on the great day. In verse 8 we read, even though you do not see him now, there's an implied contrast. You will see him then. That is why they rejoice and even rejoice in the midst of sharp trials. They know they are soon to be heaven bound with their Lord. The trials make that the more certain. Now this is a highly interesting and important point. For here is where our faith comes, becomes most immediately relevant to us and at the same time most problematic. It's not the objectivities. Trinity, creation, fall, atonement, salvation, the last judgment, concerning which most Christians stumble. It is not here that the problems come primarily. At least they don't seem to. It is more often on the subjective side. Our faith wavers because we find ourselves loving something else more than Christ. Or because we are unhappy and discouraged and feel that we ought not to be, or because the Christian faith doesn't seem to be working for us. Christian faith would be much simpler if only what was true was out there, was also just as true in here. If our emotional states and our inner convictions and our experiences of life always conformed to our beliefs and doctrines, and in particular, the Christian faith and life would be so much easier and so much less complicated if we were only always happy, really happy, to know the Lord and to be going to heaven. But in verse 4, Peter speaks as if we are always there. He speaks of these believers' glorious and inexpressible joy in their salvation in Christ. And naturally, we wonder about that. Surely those folks in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, were ordinary people with ordinary lives, and so, ordinary problems. Surely they were like us. There were Christians among them who were poor and struggled, struggled to make ends meet. Lots of people in the Greco-Roman world were like that. Surely there were people who struggled with depression, there have always been such. Surely there were Christians who were unhappy in love. Surely there were among these Christians people had troubles at work or troubles at home, in some cases precisely because they were Christians. People who struggled with ill health, people who were lonely. Yet Peter speaks as if all of them were filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Were they really? 
Had he visited those churches? Had we visited those churches, excuse me, we would have found a very different situation than one finds in the church today. We would have found the congregation bubbling with exuberant cheer, sizzling with a sense of the presence of God among them, and perpetually merry. Is that what we would have found? Were these Christians brimful of joy every day, all day, so much so that unbelievers observed them were always communicating about how happy and how joyful they were? No. You can't even read 1 Peter and believe that. Peter has already spoken of their grief and trials. And he will say a great deal more about such things before he's through. And yet he speaks of their glorious inexpressible joy we want to know what this means we want to live in joy everyone does but the scripture teaches Christians to believe it is their special inheritance to live in joy as one writer has put it it is astonishing and certainly does not need to be verified by quotations how many references there are in the Old and New Testaments to delight Joy, bliss, exaltation, merrymaking, and rejoicing, and how emphatically these are demanded from the book of Psalms to the epistle to the Philippians. Does not Paul say in Romans 14, 17 that the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit? Oh yes, we know the joy is to be a part of the Christian life and experience, but how can Peter speak of joy in such extravagant terms as if we're always and everywhere and always and everywhere the Christian state of mind and heart? We understand how Christians can experience moments of very intense joy. We remember David dancing before the ark as it made its way into Jerusalem. We have felt that way ourselves from time to time. We hear John Bunyan. Do people still read John Bunyan? We should. We hear John Bunyan speak of once before he was a Christian, listening in on a conversation of Christian women in Bedford, sitting on the stoop in the morning sun, talking of Christ and salvation and speaking. He said, as if joy did make them speak. And we can understand that. We have had moments like that and conversations like that. But the exhilaration of a moment of luminous insight into the glory and the love of God or the first discovery of those things is one thing. But joy as a permanent condition of life, that's another Even when things are going well, it is hardly the fact that we are usually giddy with joy, especially if you have a German background like mine. So what does Peter mean? This is, I think, the most important question. It has to do with how we are going to think about our own lives. 
and how we are going to explain the Christian life to others. The answer to it lies in the two adjectives that Peter employs to explain the joy that Christians have. Inexpressible and glorious. An inexpressible and glorious joy is to say that it is mysterious. There's something about this joy that is difficult to explain and describe, that defies ordinary expectations. We think we know what joy is. We think we could explain what it is to someone else. But this joy is inexpressible and unspeakable. Here begins a distinctly Christian doctrine and experience of joy. There's something about Christian joy which is distinctly different. The woman who who visited the tomb that first Resurrection Sunday and found it empty left the garden afraid and with great joy. Paul describes a Christian experience in general in 2 Corinthians 6 as that of someone who is sorrowful but always rejoicing. We wonder how you can be afraid and sorrowing and yet be full of joy. And yet this is possible for Christians. Clearly then Peter is not speaking about natural gaiety, nor even about actual merriment or hilarity, such as we see when folks are laughing together, maybe over a joke or a funny experience. The kind of joy cannot coexist with fear or sorrow. The joy Peter is talking about is not the joy of a crowd whose team has won a game, nor even quite the joy of a mother who holds her new baby in her arms. One could not call that joy inexpressible, however wonderful it may be. The joy Peter is speaking about is something deeper, more fundamental, more structural, if you will. It is a joy that lies deep within the heart as something permanent, something that creates effects in the life that can be seen on the surface from time to time, but which itself lies hidden in the core of one's self-consciousness, even perhaps below the level of self-consciousness, down at the place where God is at work in his new creation, down in the heart he has changed, the heart out of which flow the issues of life, Some of you may remember C.S. Lewis used to speak a great deal about joy. He entitled his spiritual biography, Surprised by Joy. But by joy, he did not mean merriment in the ordinary sense of the word. He meant that ineffable experience that one has in the encounter with something that is truly beautiful, an experience that transforms a life, alters its horizons, changes its standards, creates longings and openings in the mind to glorious possibilities that were unknown before. Joy remains a longing, a hunger, but it is hunger and longing for what one now knows actually exists. For Lewis, one scholar writes, joy was the longing for some lost paradise 
even the longing for it itself a kind of paradise. This joy never quite possessed. The fingers never closed around it. It never becomes something that you have and can use as you please. It is always over there. It is always drawing you forward. It, it is always, as it were, in the periphery of your life and experience. In the most relusting convert, Lewis tells us of his memory of this joy. When his nursery door opened and his brother Warren brought in the lid of a biscuit tin which he had covered with moss and garnished with twigs and flowers so as to make it a toy garden or a toy forest, that was the first beauty I ever knew. As long as I may have the imagination of paradise will retain something of my brother's toy garden. But that joy of which Lewis spoke is just the beginning of what Christians know. Whether they think about it in just that way or not, Lewis himself would find that there is in Christ a joy far deeper, greater than any joy he knew actually existed in the universe. Far more wonderful, solid, and pure than what he had glimpsed from time to time in his pre-Christian life in the world. But in a way, it's the same kind of joy, a sense of goodness and purity and love deep in the heart that transforms our outlook on life and the world, a joy that is, as the scripture says, indestructible, because it is founded in the deepest and surest reality and not in the shifting tides of worldly experience. This joy is fixed deep in the Christian soul, impervious even to sorrows and trials of life. We may have to strive and struggle. We may have to shed bitter tears for all that happens in the world. Even our Savior himself did so. But always there was this joy before him. Doesn't it give much more meaning? Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? No merriment there. Deep struggle, but the joy with his God. That bitterness and darkness of Gethsemane, even at the cross, there was this joy before him and beneath him, and always there in this joy for his people too. I cannot fully explain it. That's why Peter calls it inexpressible. But Christians know of what I speak. Our feet are on a rock, even when the gales are blowing, they feel that solid rock beneath their feet. And they know because they have glimpsed it. The beauty of the Lord is there ahead of them, beckoning them. Then to speak of this joy as glorious is to say that it is a theological joy, a joy founded upon the realities of the living God, the God of glory, his love for sinners, upon the promises of the gospel and the hope of everlasting life. G.K. Chesterton was saying this in a different way when he wrote that, for the Christian, 
Joy is the central thing in life. Sorrow is peripheral. That is for the believer in Christ. The great question of life has been answered and answered wonderfully, happily, and certainly. Their future, their happy future, glory, honor, and praise is secure. John Newton made the same point in verse in one of his hymns. Small print. Jesus, uh, excuse me, joy is a fruit that will not grow in nature's barren foil. All we can boast of Christ we know is vanity and toil. But where the Lord has planted grace and made his glories known, there fruits of heavenly joy and peace are found in there alone. A bleeding Savior seen by faith, a sense of pardoning love, a hope that triumphs over death, gives joys like those above. To have a glimpse within the veil to know that God is mine are springs of joy that never fail, unspeakably divine. These are the joys which satisfy and sanctify the mind, which makes the spirit mount on high and leave the world behind. No more believers mourn your lot. But if you are the Lord's, resign to him, resign to them that know him not such joys as earth affords. To glimpse within the veil, to know that God is mine, are springs of joy that never fail, unspeakable divine. These are the joys which satisfy and sanctify the mind, which make the spirit mount on high and say the joys which satisfy. Not because there are no difficulties, but it's because Christian joy is rooted in such ultimate and powerful things because by definition, no present sorrow is at all equal to this joy. That is not and cannot be nullified by the silence, by the shocks and creeps of this life. Many of us have now lived long enough to discover this Amazing and wonderful fact. I cannot describe this to you exactly either. But that is that wonderful warmth that the Christian feels on his back. And in the midst of a terrible storm, he discovers the glory of God still shining on him. I found this truth perhaps to the greatest degree in a powerful way in the sadness of my mother's death so many years ago. Such an appalling loss for everyone who loved her, her family, especially the people to whom she ministered, such a genuine human tragedy to die so young with so much left undone. And I had a a particularly close and affectionate relationship with my mother Probably, probably because I nearly killed her when I was born. My mother had, they found in about the six months, had placenta previa. And her water broke. 
But the doctor said, with well, the little guy still alive, let's see what happens. And my father moved her up to Emmaus to live, to be with her parents. And she woke up in her seventh month of pregnancy <clears throat> in a pool of blood. And obviously <laughs> was rushed to the hospital. And my grandmother never ceased to remind me, and my aunt still does, <laughs> that I had a face that only a mother could love. <laughs> no eyebrows, no eyelashes, no fingernails, no toenails. But we survived. And that made us, uh, over the years that she lived, very close. I spent virtually every day for the last couple months of her life with her at her bedside in the morning reading and talking. And then she was gone at the end of a long and painful illness. And yet, there it was. The joy of capital J, the glorious, beautiful knowledge of God in heaven, of the gospel in Jesus Christ, of eternity stretching away before us where all the present sorrow would be forgotten. This joy does not hold back the tears. It does not deaden the pain. It transforms them rather into a sorrow and a grief that is pure and does no harm, that we can, expe that we can be experienced, we can experience without guilt and without despair. How often Christians through the ages have commented on this fact, this glorious joy that steadies Christians and restores their balance even in the darkest and heaviest of times. You, remember, you may remember the scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress following the despoiling of Doubting Castle and the killing of Giant Despair. Mr. Ready to Halt danced with Miss Much Afraid in the road. True, Bunyan says, he could not dance without one crotch in his hand, but I promise you, he footed it well. Joy in weakness, joy in pain, joy in trouble, joy in sorrow. And now I have my own mother's testimony to add to so many others I have read of this joy that rests just below the surface and supports the believer him or her, in the hour of greatest trial. It is so because our joy is glorious, joy, a joy that is rooted in God himself and our knowledge of him in God's great promises, in Christ's salvation and in a hope of everlasting life. Or as Bishop Ryle put it, it is a joy rooted in the Christian's ability, his or her freedom to face the facts, all the facts square in the face, no matter how challenging, no matter how in some respects this depressing. The true Christian is only happy, is the only happy man because he can sit down quietly and think about his soul. He can look behind him, think of how unhinged so many have become by their worries, now and by the future. 
But a Christian can think calmly about the holy God whose eyes are on all his ways and feel, he is my father, I am weak. I am unprofitable, yet in Christ, he regards me his dear child and is well pleased. Oh, what a privilege it is to be able to think and not be afraid. That is what glorious joy is. It partakes of, it takes its nature from God of glory and from a glorious salvation. With these things, let the world do its worst. If God before us, who can be against us? But then, let's take Peter's point. Such a joy as this, which is, of course, what every human creature craves, because it's what every human being was made for, what every human being has the capacity for. How sad, how unspeakable, sad and tragic then that so many who could experience this joy do not and never will. Cannot be found in any other place, cannot be obtained in any other way than through faith in Christ and participation in the salvation he gives to them who trust in him. There's no other way into this beautiful road that stretches away into the still more exquisite future because it leads to the city of God where we will see things that will still be taking our breath away 10,000 years from now. C.S. Lewis, who knew a great deal about this inexpressible and glorious joy and who thought about it more and more, more than most men do, saw this very clearly in a famous passage from mere Christianity. Quote, there is no other way to happiness for which we were made. Good things, as well as bad, you know, are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, you must get close or even into the thing that has it. It is not a sort of prize which God gives if he chooses just out of hand to anyone. It is a great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very center of reality. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. If you are not, you'll remain dry. That's just another beautiful way of saying what Peter says to his readers and to us. Even though you don't see him now, he's speaking of Jesus who is coming again. You believe in him and are consequently filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. In every Christian life, this joy will now and then. Oh, that is more, that it were more often. Bubble to the surface and bring us moments of ecstasy. Much more important than that, meantime, is the fact that through thick and thin, come wind, come weather, that joy is always there, beckoning us, beckoning to us from the periphery of our sight. How right of Peter to say, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for such a gift.
salvation. Does it bring clear into your picture? The words of James, James chapter 1, my brothers counted all joy when you experience various trials. Are you kidding, James? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So let us be confident that in times of distress, in times of trials, in times where we may even mourn, there may not be laughter, there may not be shooting of flares, but there is, as my grandfather always used to end his prayers, Lord, give us the joy of knowing the Lord Jesus. That's what we need. That's what we speak. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for your word. And, and it's true that there are times when there are things which we cannot even express. In deep sorrows, in times of great affliction, but at that, at those times, Lord, please fill us as well with a sense of in spite of those things, those trials, those tests, that the joy of the Lord is our strength. Give it to us, we pray, O Lord, for Christ's sake. Amen. Please stand for the singing of the doxology. Praise God from